Well, throughout history, some people have portrayed Jesus in various ways. Uh, some have portrayed Jesus as a well-meaning, you know, loving, gentle, <coughs> peaceful kind of a guy. But, you know, he's a little bit naive. He was uh, kind of maybe an extreme visionary who just kind of somehow got caught up in a hostile world and, you know, he accidentally ended up hanging on a cross. There's other people that got a less generous picture of Jesus Christ and they kind of style Jesus Christ as a, uh, as a would-be conqueror. And he's the guy who, who tried to pull off some sort of a coup and failed and became a victim of his own ambition. Those are just some of the ideas that some people have about Jesus. But such views certainly don't reflect what the biblical record says. And, and we're going to look at one of those here in Matthew chapter 20. The death of Jesus Christ is mentioned here. Jesus, in fact, foretells his death for a third time in Matthew 20. So this is clearly no accident. It was destiny, if you will. It was foretold. Jesus foretold what was going to happen to him. It, it wasn't the least bit surprising to Jesus. It was to his disciples, but not to Jesus. In fact, on the contrary, he knew about his death even before his murderers had thought of these evil plans against him. The Messiah's suffering and death were planned by a holy God. It, it was planned by God the Father ages before the, these guys here ever plotted to kill Jesus. And if you don't believe me, I, I can give you a few examples here. In fact, Jesus' first recorded words in Luke chapter 2, uh, he said, I must be about my father's business. That's what he told his parents in the temple. Some of his last words, when he, just before he died on the cross in John 19, he said, It is finished. Well, what was finished? The work that he came to accomplish. He knew why he had come. He knew why he was on earth. And he knew all of the details of his life, his ministry, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. He knew it all. Because he's all-knowing. So clearly, the Lord wanted his disciples here to understand what he was soon to face. They should not have been surprised. They should have known and so, he wanted them to understand that these things were a part of God's redemptive plan. It was all in God's sovereignty. He was working it out according to his plan. So all the, the men and the women, and including Satan himself, they're just like pawns for God. And he was moving them around, accomplishing his purposes. It was no accident. So for the third time we hear... Uh, we have here, it's recorded that the Lord calls his disciples aside. He's seeking to impress on him, on, on them, I should say, the reality of what's about to happen to him. And so he's going to do a few things here in these three verses. First, he's going to assure them that, hey, these events, guys, these events, they're a part of God's plan. God had revealed his plan a long time ago, even in the Old Testament. And then he's going to give them uh, very detailed predictions about some events that were going to happen in Jerusalem. And then he gives them an idea of the sufferings that he was about to endure. So with that little background, let's look at Matthew chapter 20. 
verse 17. Verse 17. Matthew 20, verse 17 says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. End quote. <laughs> Those are Jesus' words. He obviously knew what was going to happen on his, as he was making his way to Jerusalem. So that's, first of all, look at the plan of Jesus' suffering. What was the plan of Jesus' suffering? Well, you need to understand the greater context of Matthew. Uh, for much of his ministry, Jesus, for, for a couple years now, he's been predominantly up in Galilee, the northern region of Israel. He's finished that Galilean ministry now, and now he's crossed over into the east side, an area called Perea. You'll see a, a map here. Uh, you'll see Galilee is up there by the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River comes out of the Sea of Galilee, flowing south. And so Jesus has now made his way onto the east side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Jordan River. That was kind of typical of the Jews of Jesus' day. They, they tended to avoid Samaria, which was in between Judea and Galilee. And so Jesus is he's here on the east side of the Jordan River. He's, he's making his way to Jerusalem. Actually, that started way back in chapter 19. Uh, in fact, chapter 19, verse 1 is when Jesus did that, because it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's, he's been making his way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus traveled down the east side of the Jordan River, and then uh, eventually, as you see here, he crosses over into Jericho. Jericho, you, you can see, is now on the west side of the Jordan River. Remember, that was the first city that the Israelites came to when, when they went to conquer the Promised Land. So God destroyed those walls of Jericho and saved Rahab. So, so, so Jericho was a very luscious place. Uh, plants grew quite well there, lots of vineyards and so forth. So Jesus is now crossing back over there, and there's, there's a road that goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so notice Jesus says, he says uh, in verse 17 that he was going up, to Jerusalem. Now, why would he say up? I just want you to understand that Jericho is uh, near the northern end of the Dead Sea. In fact, it's, it's quite low. You see it's actually very low. In fact, it's below sea level. It's 1,000 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem, even though it's not that far away, in fact, it's only 14 miles or 22 kilometers away from Jericho or from the the Dead Sea, it, it's at an elevation of 2,500 feet above sea level. So total up 3,500 feet. Uh, total climbing in just 22 kilometers. And so it was a very steep. Uh, in fact, it, it could also be a dangerous climb from Jericho to Jerusalem. If you remember the story of the, uh, the Good Samaritan, that's where that, it was on that road is is where that man was beaten and robbed and left for dead. And so notice Jesus here, he's not planning to do this all by himself. He's not planning to be alone. 
So as he, as he makes that steep climb from Jericho to Jerusalem, he, notice he says that he took the disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we, notice the plural pronoun, we are going. Jesus never intended to go alone. He wants his disciples to come with him. He wants his disciples to see what is about to happen to him. So going to Jerusalem is no accident here. Jesus knows why he's come. He's he's headed there. He's got a purpose in mind. And he's going to accomplish his Father's will. Jesus wasn't about to be caught off guard and uh, unexpectedly trapped there by his enemies. In fact, when, it, when we get to the part when he gets into Jerusalem, it, it's almost like Jesus purposely antagonizes the religious leaders so that they would kill him. That's kind of the impression you get. And so the Lord not only knew of, but he even foretold these events that the prophets had talked about in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus' coming. And so now he's... He's resolutely moving to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so they were indeed the very culmination of the redemptive plan of God. The whole flow of the Old Testament, when you, when you look at it, is pointing to Christ. The, the types and the symbols uh, demanded that the Messiah, who is the, the, the Lord's anointed one, would die for the sins of of, of everybody who had put their faith in Jesus alone. And so you, even if you look at uh, the Passover itself, the, the tabernacle and, and all those sacrifices and the things the Israelites were supposed to do, and all that sort of stuff points to Christ. Jesus said so in Luke 24. The law, the prophets, the writings, all that is pointing. It's, it's about me, he says. And so the death of Christ has been called that scarlet thread that weaves its way throughout Scripture. It's the supreme truth around which all others are woven, some have said. And so, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately, if you remember, they immediately became aware of their sin, and, and, and that's obvious because they recognized that they were naked. And what was the first thing they wanted to do? They they wanted to go and, and they wanted to provide their covering for their nakedness. They wanted to provide it. But God comes along and says, I will provide the covering for your sin. And God was the first one to kill an animal, and he killed that animal to provide uh, clothes to cover their nakedness. And so from the very beginning, even in Genesis 3, the guilt and shame had to be covered by a sacrifice. God showed that in Genesis 3. So both those skins, like, like by the way, all the sacrifices that were to happen after that, those were just symbolic. In fact, Hebrews says that Jesus is the greatest in all ways, says it's not by the blood of bulls and goats that sin is atoned for. It could never be... It, those things could never deal with our sin. Those were just symbolic of the Lamb of God, as John says, who came to take away the sin of the world. Adam and Eve couldn't cover their nakedness, couldn't cover their sin. Only God can. So the disciples, as you can see here, they, they knew they were headed to Jerusalem. 
And they, by the way, they knew that was a bad thing. In fact, uh, Thomas, you've got to love Thomas. One of, if you read in one of the other Gospels, one of the things Thomas says is, okay, Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem. Well, let's go with him and die also. <laughs> you've got to love Thomas's attitude. They, they knew this was bad. They didn't want to go. They didn't want Jesus to go. And they knew they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with Jesus, but they didn't know that Jesus himself was to become the Passover lamb. He was the ultimate sacrifice. So you have to understand something about the Jews at this time. They're, they're thinking lion of Judah. They're not thinking lamb. They're thinking kingdom. Jesus, we want your kingdom. They're not thinking sacrifice. They're thinking, we want your glory. In fact, <laughs> um, the mother of James and John, in the very next verses, go and ask Jesus for the glory part of the kingdom. They were not thinking suffering and death. Jesus was. So why was Jesus going to Jerusalem? Let's be clear. Why was he going? Jesus was going to Jerusalem because he had a plan. He was fulfilling God's will. He was to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world, which was in accordance to God's revealed plan in the Old Testament. Well, in verses 18 and 19, we see the prediction of Jesus' suffering. And this is Jesus himself speaking here, of course. And notice what he says in verse 18. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And then notice what he calls himself here. He calls himself the Son of Man. This was one of his favorite titles for himself. And he says that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they're going to condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Why would he do that? Well, that was the Old Testament title. Uh, you'll, you'll see it mentioned in Daniel, for example. It, but it, what it did was it connoted the, the Messiah's divinity, his, his deity, as well as his humanity. So in Christ, you understand, I hope, there's two natures united in one person forever as a result of the incarnation, the incarnation. And so it's also not only emphasizing his deity, his divinity, but also his incarnation and his humiliation. So as the divine human son of God, Jesus is declaring that he's the one who is able to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. He's the one who's able to deliver. But he's going to be delivered over to human beings, sinful human beings here, and he even names some of them. The chief priests and the scribes are mentioned here. It's interesting, the Lord doesn't mention the actual person, one of his disciples who was going to come and kiss him on the cheek and deliver him over to these men. Of course, we know that's Judas, but Jesus doesn't mention him here. Of course, he knows. But notice to whom Jesus says he's going to be delivered. The, you need to understand something about the Jewish priesthood. They had various ranks and levels amongst themselves. Uh, there was, at, at, if, you say, if you could say, at the bottom of the ladder, the bottom of the pile, were the Levites. The Levites were the lowest level. They, they, they numbered in the thousands. They were the ones who, who, uh, who really helped the, uh, the priest, if you will. They did not perform the priestly functions. 
uh, that, that took place in the, the temple, in the tabernacle, but uh, they, they did other stuff to help, if you will. The ordinary priest served in various capacities in the temple, but notice Jesus, he talks about the chief priest here. The chief priest. Well, who were they? Well, you need to understand something here as well, that by New Testament times, there was, there was a group that had developed here called the chief priests. They were the hereditary aristocracy of the priesthood, if you will. It was a hereditary thing. It was, it was passed on pretty much from father to son kind of a thing. And, and then amongst them, there was the, the highest position called the high priest. And uh, it, it, was, it was really a boys club, if you will. <laughs> Again, uh, you couldn't get in unless you were pretty much born into it. And so it was handed down from father to son. And next, Jesus mentions another very important religious group amongst the leaders of the Jews. It was the scribes. Now these guys, they actually gained their positions not by heredity, but they actually did it through learning. You could say they earned it. They had earned doctorates. Uh, These were the authorities on the Old Testament. They were also the ones who knew the rabbinical teachings which numbered in the thousands by this time. Uh, And so the scribes were closely associated with the Pharisees. Notice, as we've been reading through Matthew, it often says the scribes and Pharisees, or the Pharisees and the scribes. These these guys uh, tended to be together quite a bit. So the chief priests and the scribes, therefore, you could say if if you lump them together, they comprise the hereditary as well as the intellectual aristocracy of Judaism, Judaism being that religious group. And so that elite group of religious leaders, as we've been seeing, they've come to hate Jesus. The the opposition to Jesus has been growing. And so they're they're threatened, and you say, well, okay, why is this happening? Why why would they hate such a good man with with good teachings? Well, it's it's because they're... uh, their group, their way of life, is under threat. Jesus is threatening their hypocritical and ungodly system of power, and they don't like that. And so the executive body of the high Jewish council, which is called the Sanhedrin, is, is wanting to kill this guy who is threatening them and their system and their way of life. Notice in verse 19, in verse 19, Jesus is delivered... Not only just not only just mentioned the the chief priests and scribes, but he says in verse nineteen the Gentiles. Why does he mention the Gentiles? Well, that's because the Jews, the religious leaders, can't kill Jesus. Well, nobody can kill Jesus in reality. It's, it's God the Father who is the one who crushed His Son ultimately. But God the Father is using the Gentiles. Rome did not allow subject nations like Israel to impose the death penalty. And so the Jewish religious leaders, they're the ones who condemned Jesus. But you remember, they had to go to Pontius Pilate, get get the authority of Rome to kill Jesus and condemn him and and execute him. So it was necessary for them to, to deliver him to these pagan Roman Gentiles in order to carry out their murderous scheme. 
Well, in verse 19, we see the horror of Jesus' suffering. We see the horror of Jesus' suffering. It says that they delivered him over to the Gentiles. Notice it says to be mocked, to be flogged, and crucified. It's interesting. Of all the ways Jesus could have chosen to suffer and die, it seems like he purposely picked the worst things possible at that time. He didn't pick the easy way out. He picked the hardest way he could. Notice, first of all, it says Jesus was scourged with leather whips. He was scourged with leather whips. Now look, look what the Blue Letter Bible says about flogging or being whipped here. It says, during a flogging, a victim was tied to a post, leaving his back entirely exposed. The Romans used the whip, which consisted of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands. The number of strikes is not recorded in the Gospels. The number of blows in Jewish law was set at 40, but later reduced to 39 to prevent excessive blows by a counting error. The victim often died from the beating. During the flogging, the skin was stripped from the back, exposing a bloody mass of muscle and bone. Extreme blood loss occurred from this beating, weakening the victim perhaps to the point of being unconscious, end quote. That's from the Blue Letter Bible. So they, they, they wanted to make it difficult on Jesus. They intended to, his suffering to be extreme. So Jesus is no wimp. <laughs> He's no wimp, all right? Often the, the various artists who've tried to portray Jesus, unfortunately they don't portray him in the right light, I think. He was very strong to be able to endure this. But not only did he, he take this scourging with the leather whips, but notice he's, he's, he's had humiliation put upon him. Because the Bible says that he was mocked. He was mocked. They made fun of him. The whole time they're doing all this stuff, which is why they're putting you know, a, a fake robe on him. Okay, you want to be king of the Jews? Well, we'll, we'll make fun of you in the process. You know, they're ripping out his beard, putting a crown of thorns on his head and striking him and, and so forth. And so they took him away to be crucified, it says, after he was mocked and flogged. Look what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about crucifixion. Quote, Usually the condemned man dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. Stripped of his clothing, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through the wrist. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about 9 to 10 feet or approximately 3 meters from the ground. Next, the feet were tightly bound or nailed to the upright shaft. Death, apparently caused by exhaustion, or by heart failure, could be hastened by shattering the legs with a club, so that shock and asphyxiation soon ended his life. If you remember what the Bible says, the, the two guys who were nailed on the cross next to Jesus had their legs broken so that they would, they would die quickly. But Jesus was already dead, which when they pierced his side with the spear, uh, they, they were just doing that to make sure that he was dead, but he was already dead. He gave up his life. 
So Jesus' physical sufferings should not be minimized. He talks about them here. He's described in the Bible as one who can feel our pain, feel our sorrow. He empathizes and sympathizes with us because he is like us. He has that nature of a human being. And so you need to understand something. While he's God, he also feels pain. But the greatest sufferings he endured were not the physical pain. Okay, Sometimes people only focus on that. But let's think about the other kinds of pains that can be felt as well, which Jesus must have felt as well. I mean, think about the emotional pain. Think about the spiritual pain, not just the physical. The prophet Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 53. Let's look at this together. It's on the screen. Verse 2 says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. That ends Isaiah 53, verse 8. So, not only do you see physical pain and suffering going on there, but you should feel the emotional pain that Jesus was suffering, as well as the spiritual pain. So, as the prophet makes clear, Jesus' suffering is is far deeper than just physical pain. The Messiah would endure inner sufferings that are far more devastating than just pain inflicted on a body. You have to keep in mind that Jesus is holy. And holiness is not just sinlessness. Jesus, holiness means there's a distinction, there's a separation, there is a uniqueness about God. There is nothing else like Him. And so for Him to suffer as a sinless man... To be put in the position of a sinful man is something that's really beyond our comprehension because we're sinful. But the sinless man took the offenses of sinful men. He became despised. He was rejected. But not only was he rejected by man, he was rejected by his fellow men, his disciples, but he's rejected by his heavenly father. In, in some aspect, there, there was a rejection by his father as Jesus was bearing the penalty of fallen man. Jesus was the substitute. He was bearing the sin in our place. If you don't believe me, here's what Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, that the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
As God was crushing Jesus, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. My friends, do you see the the substitution there? The substitutionary atonement where God the Father is bearing, pouring out His wrath. The judgment was on His Son so that you don't have to bear that judgment. That's what propitiation is. Propitiation is where Jesus becomes our wrath absorber. He, he, He takes the bullet for us, if you will. Well, how did Jesus suffer? Let's just think about this. First of all, Jesus suffered the pain of disloyalty. He suffered the pain of disloyalty. It doesn't mention this here, but later on we we find out after Jesus is arrested that, that the disciples just flee, don't they? They flee. It was even one of his own disciples who was the one who had the audacity to come up and kiss Jesus on the cheek and say that this is the man you want. These were the guys who were specially chosen by Jesus. Spent a lot of time with him for several years. And even one of those guys betrayed him to the chief priests. Psalm 41 says that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling even one of the the psalms here. Psalm 41 verse 9. So Jesus suffered the pain of disloyalty, but he also suffered the pain of rejection. The Redeemer of Israel in John 1 says, that he says, He came to his own, and those who were his own, did they receive him or reject him? The Bible says they rejected Jesus. Even his own rejected him. And so his disciples fled from him. And even one of his closest, Peter, denied Jesus. So he even had to endure the rejection of his own father. Number three, Jesus suffered the pain of humiliation. As you see here in verse 19, it says they delivered him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified. He was mocked by the leaders of his people, of his own people. He's mocked by the Gentiles. I mean, they, remember they, had a, they, they stripped him naked. They're, they're saying all kinds of nasty things about him. The soldiers are, are gambling over his clothes. They hang him up on a cross naked and put a sign above his head, King of the Jews. And those pagans humiliated him with a, a crown, a mock crown, one that had thorns to go and inflict pain. They gave him a mock scepter and a mock robe of royalty. They scorned him, they spat on him, they punched him, and they nailed him to the cross naked. For the whole world to behold. Next, Jesus suffered the pain of unjust guilt. He was perfect. He's sinless. He's holy. He doesn't deserve any of this. The guilt he took upon himself was was not his own guilt. If it was you being nailed on the cross, now that's a different story. Because you're guilty. You deserve to be nailed to the cross. But not Jesus. He's sinless. It's for the sins of other people that he's paying this penalty. And so all the guilt 
of all the people who had ever lived and who had ever lived, it's placed on him. And finally, Jesus suffered the pain of death itself. Suffered the pain of death itself. Not only is he mocked and flogged here in verse 19, but it says he's crucified. He was crucified. So it may have been from suffocation that he died, but the most painful suffering that killed him was probably the grief, some have said. The grief that he suffered, which some have said, which is why when the soldier soldier pierced his side with that spear, the blood and the water was mixed together. It was the cumulative grief that he had to endure as the penalty of of the the sin of mankind was, was bearing on him. And so to save the lost, the Bible says he, he had to become sin. Literally becoming sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Look at this. It says that God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus took your sin. And if you're a believer, then God gives you Jesus' righteousness. But the story doesn't end there, does it? There's another phrase in verse 19, isn't there? Let's take a look at the glory of Jesus' suffering. What is the end? It didn't didn't end in death. It didn't end with Jesus' earthly body being put in a tomb, did it? Verse 19, what does it say? It says, He will be raised on the third day. So contrary to what both of His friends as well as His enemies thought, Jesus' Death was not the end. It wasn't the end. And Jesus knew that. Again, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 16 says that the Father would never allow his Holy One to undergo decay. The Holy One's Jesus. The Father would never allow Jesus to undergo decay. And so he raises him up on the third day just as he promised he would. So on the third day, Jesus is raised up, as as we will see later on in Matthew, never to face suffering or death again. In the process, what does he do? He, He conquers death. He conquers the works of Satan. It shows that all those who put their faith in Jesus will also one day be raised. He died to conquer sin and its penalty. What's the penalty of sin? The Bible says the penalty of sin or the wages of sin is death. Jesus conquered that. He died that those who believe in him would never have to die. Not the eternal death, anyway. The eternal death is far worse than the physical death. Jesus provides the eternal life for us instead of eternal death in the lake of fire. My friend, where are you today? Where does your hope lie? Where's your trust? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe the gospel, this good news that Jesus said that he had come to accomplish? Do you think these are true words? Or do you believe the lies that are often portrayed about Jesus? Where are you? Where, in, in your heart of hearts, what do you really believe about Jesus? My friend, what you believe about Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. And that's why it's important. Where are you going when you die? One day we're going to die unless the rapture happens first. So when you die, where will the soul, that part of you, the real you that lives forever, 
Where is that going to go? It's going to go somewhere. Where's it going? Where's it going is, is going to be based on where's your faith lie. The Bible says you're saved, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. It's not your works that will save you, lest we boast, we become proud, and say, hey, look what I've done. No. It's by grace, through faith in Christ alone. My friend, you can put your faith in Christ alone. Today, you can do that if you've never done that. My friend, if you are a believer, continue to put your faith in Christ. Continue to preach this gospel to yourself. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 3, that the gospel is of first importance. And he's writing to believers, I'll remind you, when he says that. He's writing to a church. The gospel is of first importance. Would you make the gospel of first importance in your life. Please do so.